Welcome to Ingest. My name is Charlie Andrews, your host for this series of podcasts designed for primary care clinicians and brought to you by the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology. In this episode of the podcast, I have a very special guest with me today, Professor Barry Marshall, to talk about Helicobacter pylori. Helicobacter pylori is a bacterium that's found in the stomach and it is known to cause gastritis. It is one of the main causes of peptic ulcer disease alongside non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And it's recognized by the WHO as a class one carcinogen for gastric cancer. Alongside Dr. Robin Warren, Professor Barry Marshall identified Helicobacter pylori and its role in gastritis in the early 1980s. He then faced an uphill battle to persuade the medical community that Helicobacter pylori was a primary cause of gastritis and peptic ulcer disease. But through hard work and persistence, these two men transformed our understanding of gastritis, peptic ulcer disease and gastric cancer. Ever since their initial discovery of Helicobacter pylori in the early 1980s and its role in the development of gastritis, our ability to identify this bacterium, treat it and understand how it works has expanded enormously. Professor Marshall won the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology in 2005 alongside Robin Warren for their discovery of the bacterium Helicobacter pylori and its role in gastritis and peptic ulcer disease. He's managed a Helicobacter pylori research group ever since and is the director of the Marshall Centre for Infectious Diseases. He's been awarded many honours globally for his work and is a member of many medical institutes and associations around the world. Professor Marshall is joining me today from the Marshall Centre in Australia, alongside work on infectious disease identification and surveillance. The Marshall Centre focuses on developing enhanced methods for studying and identifying H. pylori. During this episode, Professor Marshall is going to share his absolutely enormous knowledge of Helicobacter pylori with us. There'll be interesting anecdotes as we go through, He'll talk to us about the various tests involved and how we can maximize our treatment of patients with Helicobacter pylori. He'll also tell us about how he identified Helicobacter pylori and how he took the phrase taking your work home with you to the extreme when he carried out his first human trial with Helicobacter pylori. So Professor Marshall, thank you so much for joining me today. Why don't we start off by just talking a bit about what Helicobacter pylori actually is? Well, it's a bacteria, of course, and it's a microaerophilic. And these organisms like to live halfway between the blood oxygen and the anaerobic environment of the bowel. So they, they're more or less trapped in the mucus layer of the gut. So Campylobacters, Helicobacters, and a lot of other uh, gut, I guess, commensals or pathogens are either anaerobic or microaerophilic. And so that's one of the reasons why Helicobacter doesn't invade the bloodstream and uh, people who are immunosuppressed, you know, they don't get septic from Helicobacter. It sits there on the stomach and really uh, it's, it's on the surface and it's really outside the body, if you like, and that it's on the surface. So it's, it's more like a, a dermatology condition of the um, lining of the stomach. That's a really helpful and clear explanation of what Helicobacter pylori is. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you discovered Helicobacter pylori and made the really groundbreaking 
leap towards understanding how Helicobacter pylori causes gastritis, peptic ulcer disease, and gastric cancer? So the thing about Helicobacter, um, nobody, although lots of people had seen it before Dr. Warren and I did our work, uh, no one had connected up all the bits and pieces. And uh, so the, we had the advantage of being able to take biopsies uh, and cultures and study the physiology of the stomach and every, and then try and culture the bacteria, which we ultimately did. So we were pretty happy just to show that the medical texts were wrong to say that the stomach was sterile because uh, in at least 30% of Australians at that time, 50% of patients, and in developing countries, 80 or 90% of people in some places uh, have these bacteria. And probably a hundred years ago, everyone had them. Um, and it's only in the 20th century that's been a bit of a, a gradual decline for various reasons. So um, there was no doubt that bacteria lived in the stomach. And then when we were studying, you know, do they cause a disease? Well, Warren said, yep, they do. They cause gastritis by the looks of it because gastritis everyone said that was caused by aging some kind of inflammation in the stomach it's just bad habits and maybe smoking alcohol all kinds of causes like <laughs> in medicine when we don't know what the cause is you'll find a great big list of causes of all kinds of associations with things so it was like that and uh, one of the reasons people didn't believe helicobacter was important is because it was so common it just seemed incredible that the disease caused by stress, which was duodenal ulcer, actually was nothing to do with stress. It's just a bacteria. And uh, the third thing was that there's no doubt that most people with the disease were asymptomatic. <laughs> so we had a 10-year uphill battle until we got pretty much past that uh, and then got into the stage we're at now still in some places which is uh who do you treat when do you treat it how, how do you diagnose it should you treat everybody or just the bad cases uh and all that kind of situation and i'm happy that we are talking to get uh general practitioners because one thing general practitioners love to do they love to give people courses of antibiotics which cure them so that we can be very uh you know I guess, highbrow and academic about the helicobacter. But when it comes down to it, most people that find helicobacter are going to talk about it to the patient and the decision will be made to treat it. Uh, end of story. Um, it's totally right. You know, when you find something that you can treat, it is very nice in primary care. And, um, you know, helicobacter pylori is one of those. Just coming back to your story of discovery, because it really is is fascinating. And the... Um, that, that landscape of understanding was, was very different before you identified the link between H. pylori and, uh, and gastritis. And was there quite a lot of pushback against your, your discovery and your, your theories that you proposed? Well, gastroenterologists didn't like it because, although you know maybe it's subconscious, but they had a vested interest in the status quo where they were making a living on endoscoping people with ulcers and then endoscoping them again a year later when they relapsed. So uh, there was nothing in it for the gastroenterologist. And in fact, you needed to do a lot more with the patient. If you're going to treat helicobacter, you had to make the diagnosis and then you would 
prescribe some antibiotics and you would uh, do a follow-up and you check again. You know, this is quite complicated in the beginning. So I can see that uh, people were slow moving. And the initial thing was, okay, let's treat the really bad cases when everything else has failed. So that wasn't too bad because a lot of people, you know, maybe they uh, saved themselves from surgery. And certainly by the, the mid-90s, uh, gastric surgery for ulcers just about disappeared in Australia and a lot of other places. And surgeons uh, weren't all that unhappy about it because they knew that although most people that had a gastric, partial gastrectomy for ulcers didn't do too badly, but you know there were 10% who were just terrible, no appetite, weight loss, dumping syndromes, and there would be one of these people in every surgical clinic every week. So you could see it would get you down a bit. It'd make you, in some ways, uh, keep away from gastric surgery if you could help it. So it was nice not to have to do it to people anymore. And it was also nice for the for curing H. pylori. Then ulcers, no problem, because by 1993, several double-blind studies had shown that you almost got a, always got a total cure when you treated duodenal ulcers and eradicated H. pylori. And uh, about 1989, 1990, some of the epidemiologists in the UK uh, noticed the association between helicobacter and gastric cancer uh, globally. Every country with a lot of helicobacter uh, had a lot of stomach cancer and vice versa. Actually, not 100%, but uh, the hot spots for stomach cancer all had high background rates of helicobacter. And uh, Warren and I had commented that as far as we could see, it was true. And everybody knew that nearly everyone with stomach cancer had gastritis. And then when we studied our series of 100 patients and another 100, et cetera, we couldn't find anybody with gastritis who did not have helicobacter. So it seemed like nearly all gastritis was helicobacter. And since stomach cancer patients had gastritis, well, it's quite likely that it was causing stomach cancer as well. And so um, after some arguments, that idea was put out there and uh, it was 10 years before people believed it. Probably 84 was our first paper to the Lancet. And by then there were people in the UK who were validating it. So yep, we're finding the same thing. Uh, and uh, the European top, gastroenterologists and some in the United States and, and certainly the infectious disease people around the world were on board with helicobacter as a potential breakthrough. Um, and But it was hard to treat. So in those days, you could give bismuth and uh, amoxicillin and it was all very complicated. Uh, but then when the PPIs came on the, on the market, omeprazole, uh, in the in the 90s, up until about 95, 96, it was it was gradually moved into the system. It was found that if you gave a, a good dose of omeprazole, you could use amoxicillin and an anti another antibiotic or bismuth, you know, different combinations, and get pretty high cure rates up into uh, 85, 90 percent. And so at that point, okay, well that was great. Uh, and GPs and gastroenterologists were enthusiastic for a few years. And they said, well, it's not very complicated anymore. And you know, we just hand it off to the GPs. Once we've made the diagnosis, 
the endoscopy is done, we're losing money as soon as we see that patient again. So uh, patients were then treated by the GPs and that's much better. Nowadays in Australia, I, I think medical students could go through our training course without ever seeing a patient with a duodenal ulcer. They don't, if they've got helicobacter and they've got symptoms that could be an ulcer, well, they get treated uh, and that's it. And in a st people sometimes ask me to collaborate on research related to stomach cancer. And I say, well, I've got some stomach cancer cases, uh, frozen samples in the refrigerator, but I don't have any patients. One patient in five years. So that was great. Uh, but you can see it's really moved a long way. And that, that's, it's, um, I'm it's thinking amazing. that. Uh, when I was a medical student, I used to hear about tuberculosis and it was really hard to see a case, hard to find a case. And it's a bit like that with ulcers now. I think uh, people have got ulcers because they're taking non-steroidals, uh, insights, uh, maybe maybe some other reasons, but um, so that, that nowadays ulcers would have about a, not more than a 50% chance of having helicobacter. And um, you could probably diagnose a patient with helicobacter by just asking, uh, taking the history, you know, where were you born and did anybody in your family have it? Anyone have ulcers? Mm. And you could pretty much work out whether the patient's probably just got GERD, which is now more common in, in Western countries probably than helicobacter pylori uh, induced ulcers and things. Uh, or you've got helicobacter. It's amazing for me to hear how much we have progressed in our understanding of Helicobacter pylori since you first identified the pathogen in the stomach. And in particular, how it's had a huge impact on some of these conditions that previously were really common, such as peptic ulcer disease and gastric cancer. It's had a huge impact on the numbers of patients with those conditions. I wonder if now we could perhaps move on to how we diagnose Helicobacter pylori. Could you tell us about how you would do that in clinical practice? I use, I use all tests, but uh, I would screen with a serology. And in Australia, you can screen, if you like, with a breath test. There's fewer false positives. So the government thinks it probably saves a bit of money yeah. and doesn't expose patients to unnecessary antibiotics. Uh, the stool test is almost as good and uh, doesn't need any preparation or anything. You've described three tests there. So we've got the uh, serology blood test, the breath test and the stool antigen test. I'm certainly really familiar with the stool antigen test. That's something I use a lot in clinical practice as a GP. And I'm also familiar with the breath test. And I think that those are the two tests that we are we, we often use in primary care or, or in in the UK, um, not quite so familiar with the serology test. And I think that our guidance generally advises us to use the stool antigen and um, breath tests initially. But I just wonder, would you be able to just talk through the, um, the pros and cons and uh, just explain some of those tests a little bit more to us? Let's not worry about whether it's IgM or IgG. You know, I remember the professors used to give us crazy questions like that when I was a medical student and I said well you know you do a blood test and you look for antibodies if they're there the person's had the infection or they've still got it so depending on the history uh, you may go out and treat it just on the serology but um, it's coming now to the stage now that fewer people have H. pylori and more people have 
a residual antibody. And so if you, I know that if you uh, have a H. pylori treatment, about 50% of people still come up positive on a serology test after one year. So uh, it's a good idea to repeat, to do a test which actually confirms presence of the bacteria. And so the, the breath test or the stool test are things that actually find organisms. Serology says you've had it. Breath test and stool test, you've got it. And it's not, none of the, no tests are 100% sensitive and specific. But I, th I think one of the useful things of serology is you've got a patient comes in, you know, a white, uh, you know, 30-year-old woman with a bit of a stomach ache and uh, she thinks she might have an ulcer or something. Well, you know, I would put my money on that she does not have an ulcer. She would have something else, even good. Um, and I would uh, do, I might, Sure, put on a PPI, try this or that, but I might also do a serology. And if the serology is negative, it pretty much rules it out okay. because a serology is very sensitive. So nearly everybody with, uh, with H. pylori or ha who's had it would have a <laughs> positive serology. Uh, <clears throat> if, you, if you've got a negative serology, uh, it means that you're in a very unusual case. Uh, I've seen people who just don't, have antibody stage pylori mm -hmm. uh, or um, you've never had it uh, you, so you, you would not put that at the top of your list if you had a negative serology and it's if you say well you know we're going to check your hemoglobin liver function whatever mm -hmm. uh, MLAs to the H pylori serology and so we can rule it out on the basis of that but if it's positive you say well you know there's a lot of antibiotic resistant ones around and uh, I don't want to be treating you with all these antibiotics if I can help it. So uh, let's confirm it with a test that's, that's very specific. And so I always use a breath test at that point. In, in Australia, that's the number one test. Um, the stool test, okay, that's fine. Uh, stool test is great for children, but then we don't like to diagnose and treat children with antibiotics. It's too complicated, so wouldn't wouldn't go looking for helicobacter very hard in children if you can help it if you can find something else so you you go that breath test okay the breath test is positive ah so two things at that point if you the thinking process is okay you've definitely got helicobacter no doubt about it uh don't worry we can eradicate it in two weeks with a combination of antibiotics um, but where did you get it from so you probably caught it from your mother if you are uh, from Latin America, you could catch it in the drinking water. In Peru, you could catch, catch it in the drinking water. If you had been uh, in Afghanistan or you know, any place where there's a lot of H. pylori and, and you might be in the war or something, uh, you could pick it up in the environment. But usually it means, okay, who's the other person in your family who has it? So every time you find a H. pylori, you say, where's, where's the rest of them? And occasionally you'll find the whole family has it. And then you'll, you'll find that about a quarter of them are symptomatic and the others aren't. Uh, so it's quite fun to mm. chase down the H. pyloris. Uh, and you definitely treat the adults. So the question is, um, say a 30-year-old person who's got symptoms of an ulcer, you know, uh, there's still still a good case to do an endoscopy 
Is there reflux esophagitis as well? It's often hard to tell the difference. Uh, and you might find people who don't have ulcers. They're just dyspeptic. And this is the functional dyspepsia, non-ulcer dyspepsia patient. And so um, those people, if you eradicate the H. pylori and, and look after their symptoms for six months or so, 50% uh, of them will be totally better. Uh, I remember Colmo Moraine uh, did a study in Ireland. He published, I, I, probably in gut, it might have been in Lancet, uh, a, a study of uh, treatment of non-ulcer dyspepsia with uh, eradicating H. pylori or just giving a PPI, following them up. And I think he followed them up for six months. And uh, usually you have to do these things in a year so that the registrar can get his publication and move on to his next job. Uh, so that they published it. But when he presented it and discussed it in conferences six months out or a year out, he was saying, look, I've seen these patients a year later and they are, a lot of them are really better who might've taken a, a bit longer to get better. And uh, the converse of that is, I, I don't have a patient who said I was better before I had that helicobacter treated. Um, please give it back to me. <laughs> if patient wants to have it back, we can do that because we have it frozen yeah. <laughs> in the refrigerator, but no one asks for it back. And if you look at the guidelines and say, well, I'm, that's a bit conservative. I'm not really going to go with the guidelines. I'll have a discussion about it with the patient. And the patient says, um, so is it infectious? Um, yes. Uh, well, who can get it off me? Well, your partner, maybe your children. And it's probably spread by kissing. Okay, well, that doesn't sound very good, does it? And uh, is there a cancer risk? Well, 60% of people have the CAG A toxin on the helicobacter and they probably do have a cancer risk, but it takes 50 years of gastritis. So you don't worry, you won't get it till you're 70 or 80. <laughs> so, okay, cancer risk. And you can spread it to the next generation. And there's a 10% chance that I'll be getting symptoms or an ulcer. I think if you said that to me, I'd be saying, yes, please, I'll, I'll take the treatment. Thanks very much. Um, so, so in the UK, we, um, uh, in terms of who we treat, our guidelines suggest that we should try a treatment with a PPI first. And then if that doesn't work, then, then, then test and treat for H. pylori. But I think in reality, a lot of GPs will see a patient with dyspepsia and they'll, they'll generally do the test before starting. Cause I know that things, mm. there are certain things that can confound the results a little bit with the stool and, um, breath tests. Is that right? Things like the PPI can alter the result. and Yeah, so once the patient's on a PPI, if they've got GERD, they might not want to stop it. You get a false negative result. So you give the patient some omeprazole or whatever PPI you've got handy and uh, see how you go. By the way, I go and have this, have a bit of a few blood tests and we do a H. pylori serology. And then uh, 48 hours later, the patient gets a phone call. So, oh, it looks like your helicobacter is positive. So just stop that PPI uh, for a few days and go and have this breath test. If it's positive, I'll give you a course of antibiotics. Okay. Or I know some GPs are a bit slack and I know I can think of a couple. <laughs> but they said, ah, oh, I, I just treat it anyway before I don't bother with those tests. <laughs> so I don't, I don't agree with that because the compliance of the patient and the doctor it's going to be much better. You'll get cure rates that are higher and you won't be partially treating H. pylori infection, create, creating uh, um, 
resistant organisms, superbugs around the place. So uh, be, so be, uh, I guess, um, a bit disciplined and try a bit harder to get the follow-up on the patients and uh, mm. all that. In terms of people with acid reflux predominant, is that, yeah. is, that a, is that an indication, is that a reason to test for H. pylori or, or, or do people with H. pylori not generally get primarily acid reflux? So you, you try to be a bit, bit clever. If you take a history of the patient says, yeah, I'm getting acid reflux and um, take an antacid, feels better. And, uh, and then you say, well, do you, ever, do you ever feel, you know, like bloated or nauseated? Do you ever vomit? If you start to get these other symptoms, they're a bit more gastric and they would really uh, encourage, you, encourage me to, to, to try very hard to check the stomach. Um, so that'd be H. pylori. But I, I would do H. pylori test on everybody because some people with H. pylori will have high acid secretion. So my um, anecdotal experience is that some people, when you treat their H. pylori, they will get acid reflux symptoms. Other people with apparent acid reflux symptoms will be much better when you treat their H. pylori. Moyadi did a big study in Bristol, and what they saw was that some people, they, they developed GERD, some people, the GERD went away, and that's why on average, over a few hundred people, there's no signal of increased or decreased GERD. They say that H. pylori makes no difference to those kinds of symptoms. You treat them separately or independently. So it's really just common sense, isn't it? Yeah, no, of course. And just thinking now about treatment, if that's okay. Mm. So, um, mm. so can we talk a bit about the treatment treatments that there are? So in the UK, we start with triple therapy. Could you talk a bit about the basis for triple therapy and, and how you kind of approach a patient or would recommend approaching a patient with a positive H. pylori perhaps on a breath test or stool antigen? If a patient takes lots of different antibiotics for things, UTIs, chest, sinus, and they still have H. pylori, you know that it's going to be resistant to a number of antibiotics. So the way I um, classify these, well, let me before we start, we'll say the number one breakthrough with H. pylori was acid blockade. And it's common sense that antibiotics that we use commonly are designed in the pharmacology of the antibiotics designed to go into urine, to be concentrated in the urine. That is say amoxicillin sulfurs or something, uh, or concentrated in the sputum, again, amoxicillin, and uh, even uh, clarithromycin, uh, roxithromycin, all those macrolides, they are good for the, the ENT, the sinuses, ear infections, throats, that they're not designed to give high levels of active antibiotic in the stomach where there's acid. It's a different, totally different environment. So it's not surprising that they don't work so well. So number one, remove the stomach acid and you'll notice the original um, treatment with uh, for H. pylori it was called uh, probably low sec HP7 something like that that was uh, 20 milligrams of omeprazole twice a day plus amoxicillin and clarithromycin now we're using Nexium 20 milligrams twice a day so that's really 40 milligrams of omeprazole twice a day so that's great that's the starting point lots of PPI so don't be stingy with the PPI. The second thing is um, the, the antibiotics. 
there is a group of antibiotics that H. pylori cannot become resistant to. So that's good news. And so uh, the number one, of course, is amoxicillin. So although H. pylori might fail different treatments with amoxicillin, in vitro and in vivo, probably they are still sensitive to amoxicillin. So uh, you can always use that. The second one that you'll see around is bismuth, and uh, that's bismuth citrate. It used to be called, it's denol tablets probably in the UK, but H. pylori doesn't appear to become resistant to bismuth. The third one is tetracycline, and you have an issue, you don't give it to children under the age of 16 or 17. Um, you don't give it to pregnant women. And in Australia, you tell people keep out of the sun because it makes you photosensitive or something. Okay, so th those three antibiotics, and there are a few others that I use because I run a special clinic for resistant cases and they're a bit toxic like furizolidone and uh, uh, rifabutin, they're more or less TB type drugs. Um, but anyway, you've got those three, you've got, um, you've got amoxicillin, bismuth and tetracycline. So you can always add that into a treatment. And then you've got the ones that are really strong sidal, but H. pylori will develop resistance to them. And that is metronidazole, uh, clarithromycin, or any macrolide, uh, norfloxacin, levofloxacin, any quinolone. You can imagine combining them in the right way, the PPI, one of those three antibiotics that always works, and then one of the other three antibiotics on top. And so that you can see, you can give uh, easily give uh, the Nexium HP7, and that's with clarithromycin and amoxicillin that fails, okay, the second time around, we could still give the amoxicillin again, instead of the clarithromycin, we could give a quinolone. And with two treatments like that from a general practitioner, you can see we're getting up to 90% cure. And then, then it becomes a bit intellectual. You're looking at a patient who has got significant symptoms. They really seem to be related to H. pylori. They go into partial remission and get better. They got a resistant organism. So at that point, you can get a bit fancy and um, the gastroenterologist can take biopsies, do sensitivities, mm. um, infectious disease docs, or maybe you're a, a GP that loves H. pylori, you can do fancy things. And in in um, Australia, we've been doing it in China, sort of getting involved with this is uh, do a string test. Uh, so the patient swallows a, a string inside a capsule and uh, after an hour you pull the string out and on the end of the string you've certainly got some h pylori stuck there and you try to culture them so if you can culture them that's the best that'd be 70 percent of cases but uh at least you could uh, sequence them with a pcr and look for the antibiotic resistance re resistance genes and get a sensitivity reading from that and uh i we think that there's a lot of value in the dna on the end of that piece of string you know mm. is there a cancer down there are you at risk of this or that i think in 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 the uk generally once we've tried second line treatment we're recommended to refer on and i think that's exactly in line with what you're saying about at that point mm. you're probably dealing with something quite resistant and in terms of the testing so if we are retesting when should we do it and does it matter what test we use uh, when you're retesting, uh, I'd say avoid the serology because the patient will get all excited if it's positive and all, most of them will be positive. So you just, it's a big time waste explaining the vagaries of uh, serology results. After you've failed treatment or successful treatment, 
don't worry about the serology. Go on to a test which measures the antigen. It measures the organism, counts it. At this point, I, I, it's just a thought I had a while ago that occasionally uh, people, uh, some people think, oh yeah, well, we, we try to get the H. pylori down to a safe level. And it's so common, you know, it's still there, but it's only 1% level. And so don't worry about it anymore. That is not true. When you have a, a treatment for H. pylori, it is gone. The whole, your whole body is sterilized of H. pylori and you will not, you should not get any positive tests anymore. And so uh, just, just avoid that. That's a fallacy about it being partially eradicated. Uh, so then um, you're going to get, give your treatment and uh, how do you manage this business of, uh, of course, half the patients you see are on omeprazole, aren't they? Or PPI, <laughs> I know this issue. Um, if you, there was some nice breath test data where they suppressed H. pylori completely with bismuth, and then they did a breath test every day to see uh, how long it took to come back. Well, it usually came back with three, within three or four days. So realistically, if you stop the PPI and say it has a 48 hour action, then five to seven days after that, you should be able to get a positive breath test, a positive biopsy, everything positive. Uh, but uh, you, know, you might have the occasional case that gives you a false negative, and that is, that's an issue. You don't want false negatives. So most people say two weeks off the PPIs. Just make it two weeks, keep it, keep it as, as long as that if you can, and then you're absolutely certain if H. pylori is there, it will be growing back. And the, my experience is that it doesn't go down to zero and then come back up to 20%. It comes up back up to 100%. Okay. Um, so anyway, you do the, the follow-up tests two weeks after the PPI. So then, of course, then you've got 10% of your PPI patients. I can't possibly stop taking this PPI, doc. You know, I just reflux all night. It's burning me. So that's a terrible situation. So uh, what you could do is uh, ask the patient to take a, a, an H2 blocker and a, um, an antacid, see if you can get by on that. So those are okay, if, those ones are okay with testing? Not perfect, but you know, if I would say take ranitidine and um, take, two or three or four tablets a day uh, to try and control your symptoms and take antacid if you're getting a breakthrough and then don't take anything and you'll just have to suffer for 24 hours before the endoscopy or the breath test. Mm -hmm. uh, and if it's, if it's uh, rather uh, a difficult case, the breath test is coming back borderline and the stool antigen's very iffy, uh, go to a gastroenterologist and get, a bi get some biopsies. Occasionally you'll get patients who have uh, reinfection from their partner. So don't be frightened of testing the partner. Be, usually they're quite agreeable to get tested and they may be totally asymptomatic and they have got H. pylori. And so that uh, in those cases, I might treat husband and wife together. We have actually had a patient, she was in a study and we were doing this thing where we wanted to see if people could re get reinfected with their own strain. So we were sort of asking this, you know, leading on to this thing, can you, how, how easy is it to catch it again and again? 
And so we had some patients, but one woman, uh, we treated her. And then she said, oh, the GP tested my husband and he's positive as well. And so we treated him, the GP treated him. And then she was negative and then she came positive again. And the, the, the H. pylori <laughs> appeared to be, because they weren't being treated in sync, that you would treat this one and it'd jump as if it was jumping away and going into the partner. And then that one we treated, it would jump back into the, the patient again. So it became very confusing in that uh, paper when we were looking at all the genomics, trying to figure out where this H. pylori really came from. It can be interesting. Wow, that's really interesting. And one of the things that I hadn't really considered myself was that if you have someone with H. pylori, it's quite possible that someone who lives with them may well also have it. So that's definitely a bit of a take home for me. And talking about family and other people within that family unit, what about testing and treating in children? The, the issue with children, it's hard to do double blind studies in children because, you know, someone says it's not ethical to give these kids all this invasive endoscopy, et cetera, and biopsies, and, and you've got to give them antibiotics and uh, who knows what sort of symptoms they've got. So if you can get away with it, you don't want to diagnose H. pylori and have to give antibiotics to children if they're not sick. So don't test for it. And this is the, uh, one of the rules in medicine. You only do a test if the result is going to change your management. Otherwise, you shouldn't do it. You just create problems for yourself and the patient. So um, people say, oh, um, little Johnny. Oh, actually, I do, I do clinics in China. And uh, this is a situation. So a woman comes in and she's got a 12-year-old son. She says, um, look, he's, he's got H. pylori there. And uh, I want you to treat it. And I said, well, how did you find out? He's, is he, does he have any symptoms? She says, no. And I, so I was treating, maybe I was treating her or her husband or somebody. And uh, I said, well, why, why did you check for it? Why did he have the test? Oh, well, we just don't like the idea of our kids having H. pylori. <laughs> so I was like, well, am I going to give, I can't give him tetracycline. I don't want to give him um, norfloxacin because he's in some kind of junior basketball league and you break his Achilles tendon in five minutes. So I'm there like, please bring him back when he's 16 or if he gets really sick or something, I'll, you know, we'll work on it. Anyway, it's caused all, all sorts of problems. You know, she brought him back when he was 13 and when he was 14, eventually, all right, all right, we'll treat it. We can't take it anymore. But on the other hand, you know, some doctors just don't believe that any that, that some people believe that all stomach pains in children are functional i say oh well he usually gets it on monday morning it's obviously school phobia but i can tell you as even as an adult i definitely feel worse on mondays and i'll take monday off uh, so kids are the same but if uh you see a child is you know complaining about stomach aches occasionally they vomit they've got a bad appetite they may have even have funny things like uh, chronic halitosis and they may complain more or get sick on Mondays. You know, check for H. pylori because that uh, illness, if it's H. pylori, could be totally cured and it could be interfering with that kid's whole life 
uh, at this stage by affecting his school. And uh, I can, I, I, I've always got an anecdotal report, but I, when I was a registrar, nobody believed H. pylori. I said, oh, that's Marshall's crazy theory. I was a medical registrar and a child, she must've been about 14. She somehow, uh, we got consulted she got into the adult hospital and um, she got consulted about possible anorexia nervosa and the family had caught her um, vomiting. So they're saying she's bulimic. And um, so I went and saw her. I couldn't find anything wrong with her. And when I asked her, took the history, she said, when I eat something, I just feel so terrible. The only way I can feel better is to go and vomit. And then I'm all right. But, you know, I just feel terrible about it uh, so I snuck off a blood sample and did a serology on her which we use no commercial tests or anything these days and she's strongly positive so I said uh, to the family well you know why don't we give her a course of amoxicillin and maybe we're using bismuth or tetracycline or something like that for for a couple of weeks see how she goes anyway so in that two weeks she went to an outpatient clinic as well and saw a psychiatrist. And so by 14 days, she was totally cured after being unwell for months and years. And I'm sure everybody was saying, wow, you know, that psychiatrist really must have done a great job. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> so you, you can no. see stories like that. Um, a gastroenterologist who believed all this conservative teaching, especially in the United States, they're even more conservative than the UK, I think. And he, he was an African-American guy, very good gastroenterologist, but you know he's following the party line. Maybe he was a pediatrician and his daughter had chronic abdominal pain. And uh, he, I think he somehow found out that she had H. pylori, but the teaching was, you know, it doesn't cause dyspepsia in kids. Here's the double blind study. So for about a year, he didn't treat her and she was sick every week and she was going down and down. Eventually, you know, he's tearing his hair out. Eventually he gave her some antibiotics and she was better almost like overnight. And, you know, he was carrying this burden of guilt that any <laughs> less, uh, genius uh, gastroenterologist, GP, any normal doctor around the town would, would have treated her as soon as she walked in the door for helicobacter, even though it wasn't mainstream. And yet, because he was such a great specialist, uh, he had to practice what he preached and his daughter suffered as a result of that. Oh, no. So I'm sure she's all right now. We're coming to the end. There is this story that you infected yourself with H. pylori as well. What was your thought so, around doing that? Were you worried about doing it? Did you did you feel? So I'm not going to get a job as a, a clinical trials epidemiologist because I've published a paper with an N of one. I've actually published a paper with an N of two as well. I'm working up. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the story was that uh, to fulfil Koch's postulates, you want to try and infect an animal and see if the animal's going to get an ulcer. So in, that was way back in the early days. Uh, so this was, would have been 1984. And Warren and I had been working on it for three years at that stage, and we were pretty excited. But we didn't have an animal model. And we tried rats and guinea pigs and rabbits. And I can tell you, you can most of these animals, you can inject live H. pylori intravenously. And the animals don't even get a fever. It's just 
not pathogenic and it'll just get soaked up in the spleen, I suppose. So I did uh, run an experiment trying to infect piglets and we were endoscoping piglets and then we would take some biopsies and we would feed them H. pylori every night for a couple of weeks and then we would endoscope them again, nothing. So after six months, it was impossible to manage these piglets. So they were about a hundred pounds and they were about six foot long. You know, they were turning into monstrous pigs. Yeah. So I got canceled that experiment and we might have might have written it up, but I then uh, decided to do a human experiment and, and Dr. Warren, he had H. pylori and I had treated him. So he had antibodies and it uh, wasn't sensible to try and give him H. pylori. He probably would fail because he had antibodies. And uh, so I took a H. pylori, a uh, couple of Petri dishes and drank them. And I took a, a few tablets of um, sumetidine just so it wasn't too acidic and I was fasting. So I think I took them on a Tuesday morning and um, was 10 to the ninth organisms. And I felt a bit dyspeptic, a little bit gurgly in the stomach for a few, three or four days. And then I started vomiting. And, the, and that weekend, both my wife and my mother commented that I had a bad breath. And uh, the, so the quick, beautiful very, thing- Very fast, it sounds like. So day five to day seven, you have an acute illness where you vomit. And there was, I didn't notice, I you know, didn't click at, at the time, but uh, the vomit had no acid in it. So in the acute H. pylori infection, instead of getting an ulcer and bleeding to death or something terrible happening to you when you haven't got any immunity to it, the cytokines in the stomach turn off acid secretion. So H. pylori's got this thing, it needs to get a foothold in there. It doesn't want you vomiting and dying. That would kill the whole plan. Uh, we want to cause a chronic infection. If we get rid of the acid, we'll get down right into the glands and the antrum and hang out there and, and the, create a smoldering kind of illness there that lasts the rest of your life. So that's the perfect uh, pathogen, if you like. Most people don't die, but they spread it to the next generation and everybody else. So that brings up out some other questions. Is it, is it useful? But um, so the, the thing about the H. pylori is that so I was thinking about all this and writing this up. And my father-in-law, my wife's father had retired and gone on this great road trip around Europe and England. He was staying in Oxford and he used to go to the old bookshop. So he brought back William Osler, Osler and McRae, 1910 textbook of medicine. They had a great big chapter on gastritis. 1910, which I started reading. And it says, oh, in, in acute gastritis, a patient vomits for a few days. And if you test the vomit, there's no acid in it. And so in those days, the, the kids would be vomiting. They probably all catch it. Kids would be vomiting. The mum would save the vomit. And the, the, the Osler would do a house visit and he'd dip litmus paper in the vomit. He's saying, green. There's no acid in the vomit. Oh, don't worry. This is uh, acute gastritis, achlorhydric gastritis. It's, it's well known in the medical book. And um, just give the kids some lemonade, flat lemonade, and some milk arrowroot biscuits and milky bread or whatever it was. And he'll get better in a few days. And, and sure enough, that used to be the situation. But of course, everybody grew up having lifelong H. pylori after that. And as it became less common, uh, it was taken out of the textbooks in 1966. So Cecil's textbook of medicine dropped it in 1966. Everyone said, well, that seems pretty rare. We don't see much of that this day, these days. 
and that was a better standard of living, smaller families, hygiene, uh, and they, normal things like that really combat H. pylori. And the reason it's disappearing in England, not because uh, everyone's getting antibiotics, it's just as the generations go, go along, every 20 years it dropped by 50%. So if it was 30% in year 2000, now it's 15%. And in Japan, hardly anybody has it if they're younger than the age of 10. Uh, and and you, it's hard to do research on it anymore. You can't find those cases, especially in children. But uh, luckily, uh, everybody's got lots of uh, Ukrainian refugees and uh, Bosnian refugees, African refugees. Everybody's got displaced people turning up. And in Australia, they those people have a, at least 50% infection rate. Mm. And uh, so <clears throat> that's where the, so in Australia, in my clinic, uh, half of the people I would see be Vietnamese, their parents were refugees, and then um, uh, Middle East, uh, uh, Latin America, you know, so internationally, people are moving around and migrating here and there more. And I bet you that's the same in, in the UK. Yeah. Where are you? Are you in London? I'm actually in Bath. That's a yeah. famous place, isn't it? Did Charles Darwin used to go to Bath and have the cold water treatment or something? I'm sure every every good author <laughs> must have done that at some point. Is that um, near? That's quite close to Worcester and Gloucester, isn't it? Yeah, so we're not too far from Gloucester. I mean, we're, you know, we're not far from Bristol. Bristol's our main city. Okay, I remember Bristol. That was, I went there and saw the Great Eastern, the first screw-powered iron ship. Yeah, used to take people to Australia. I know it's an, it's an amazing ship that one. Yeah, it is. Yeah, uh, it was. I, was I enjoyed Bristol. It was great. Lots of interesting things there. So, but you haven't finished the story about when you when you were infected with with H. pylori, or you, or when you drank your petri petri dish full of H. pylori. Because did you? Uh, okay. Did you, then, did you that? Did 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 you have treatments ready in advance? Did you know that you could treat it? Well, you know, I did it secretly, and my boss said he's doing the endoscopy. He says Barry. I don't know why you asked me to do this endoscopy and take these biopsies, and I don't want you to tell me. So <laughs> he kind of knew that this was an illegal, unsanctioned experiment. Yeah. Uh, so that went on. Um, and after 10 days, I had a, an endoscopy at, really at, at the peak of the illness. And uh, my boss, Dr. Hislop, who was ex-Mayo Clinic uh, stock, so blue blood gastroenterology, uh, he um, took the biopsies and they were just covered in H. pylori. The mucosa was just like wet blotting paper was falling to bits, but I didn't have any dyspepsia. I had no acid. And uh, so then I said, uh, okay, well, we've proven the infection. Let's now want to get lots of EMs and good histology samples and everything you know everything you think of mm -hmm. and next tuesday i'll have another endoscopy and we'll get the good data published this fantastic paper it's going to be great but in uh and i went <laughs> went home and told my wife at that point that i was infected with h pylori isn't it great <laughs> and she's she's there like what <laughs> you'll infect me you'll infect the family that explains why you've got a bad breath the last few days. I can't take it anymore. It's too much, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And actually, she had been in a car accident. It wasn't terrible, but she did have a whiplash. It wasn't her fault, by the way, some, some lunatic 
hit her on the side of the on the side and she had the kids in the car so they were all going to the emergency room and she had a whiplash and so the family was in chaos and in the middle of it i turn up hey good news i've got a h pylori infection i'm vomiting <laughs> every day so um, she said you get on the anti start the antibiotics immediately and i said calm down, calm down, please. I'm going to have an endoscopy on Tuesday. I promise I'll take antibiotics as soon as I've had the endoscopy. I've got the biopsies, blah, blah, blah. She says, right, if you haven't started antibiotics on Tuesday, you're moving out. <laughs> so, so I'm looking, how much, how much a single room rent cost? Yeah. Uh, so we're, so that was the situation. And um, I did take uh, start taking metronidazole on that day. As soon as I had the endoscopy, I, I was still feeling a bit unwell. I took metronidazole, but biopsies were all negative. And so it turns out that uh, you know, a third or a half of people that have the acute, acute H. pylori infection will spontaneously get rid of it. And it depends on the surface antigens in the H. pylori and your blood group and various other things, whether or not the initial infection is a tight, uh, match with your mucosa and if that's the case lifelong and so uh, you might if you if you're married to somebody say you know 2022 you got married and your partner had h pylori you would be exposed occasionally to h pylori because they would occasionally reflux a few bacteria into the mouth and kissing or whatever uh, so you would be exposed to that infection but when we looked at married couples only 50% of the partners were infected. And you say, okay, well, some of them would have already had it with a different strain. But when you check them, 25% of the partners were infected with the identical strain. And so you can catch it, but also you can catch it temporarily, we think, and just become immune to that strain. And that's all very well in Western countries. You can see it would gradually go away. But um, if you lived in Peru, you're drinking water out of the river and 10k up the stream there's people with sewage going into that river and then 10k further up the mountain if you've ever been to peru there's plenty of streams and mountains there i can tell you uh everybody's got h pylori coming from somewhere else in the water unless you drink bottled water or have your own water supply so that kind of explains the epidemiology the other one is uh, how do you catch it will you catch it off your mother and a Chinese uh, professor at UWA called Jack Shu. Uh, he said he came from Shenzhen. He said that used to be a fishing village and the mums would always chew the fish, get the bones out of the fish and then put it in the mouth of the baby. So pre-mastication of food from mother to child is how over the generations H. pylori was always spread to the kids. End of story, if you like. And uh, so we don't do that anymore. And with a bit of hygiene, smaller families, hot water, all that, um, we're going to get rid of H. pylori gradually. Yeah. Uh, but um, anybody, certainly anyone with symptoms, check them for H. pylori and treat it, and then then figure out the rest of it at your leisure. That's that is a good final note to finish on, I think, and that's really really helpful. So thank you so much for joining me today. That was um, really interesting, you know, a game changing discovery and, um, you know, absolutely fascinating. So thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. And to the GPs out there, don't be guilty about giving people antibiotics. You're probably <laughs> saving a few lives. That's my opinion. Well, that's the end of today's podcast, and I really hope that you've enjoyed listening to Professor Marshall talking about Helicobacter pylori. 
it's quite unusual to speak to someone who's had such an impact on our understanding of gastroenterology. And I've just really enjoyed and felt inspired by the discussion today. And I hope that you have as well. We've got plenty more episodes for you. So please do join me for further episodes, which we are bringing out every two weeks. Um, so coming up soon, we have episodes on chronic diarrhea, how to manage that. We're looking at inflammatory bowel disease with two fantastic speakers, Chris Lamb uh, and Kevin Barrett. So please stay tuned and, uh, and join us in the coming weeks. Mm -hmm.